Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. Now, we've got another special episode of the show for you today. Last Wednesday, leading energy industry figures and analysts converged on the Hilton London Tower Bridge for the second edition of Wood Mackenzie's annual hydrogen conference. I was there to capture all the conversations and bring you the highlights from a packed day of panels, presentations and interviews. In fact, it was such a packed day, we've split our report from the conference into two episodes. This is the first part, and then there's a second part that'll be out tomorrow. Coming up in this episode, you'll hear from Rick Butel from Bloom Energy, Inez Kraft from the German electrolyzer company Sunfire, Mona Bagat from KBR Technology, and Andre Pina from the Portuguese power company EDP Renewables. I've just stepped off stage after hosting the first panel discussion of the day, where I was talking to some leading industry figures about the role that hydrogen can play in a decarbonized energy system and about some of the challenges that still need to be overcome. This is what Andy Lane, who's the Vice President of Hydrogen and Carbon Capture in the UK, BP, had to say about the role of China in the industry's future. From a perspective of global warming, anything China and the Chinese are able to do to reduce their emissions, we should be fully supportive of, regardless. So if they can generate solar power cheaper than anybody else, knock yourself out. They can make electrolyzers cheaper than anybody else, knock yourself out. And I think the level of competition that that puts into other parts of the supply chain is actually healthy for everybody. So I don't believe we can get into a defensive mindset when it comes to these supply chains. You hear similar conversations about battery supply chains and about rare earth metals, you know, frankly, any number of different things. We have to learn to work with this, but it's a bit like the IRA in the States, you know. Is that a threat to European business? Possibly. Is it a good thing for global warming in general? Absolutely. So I'm actually a supporter of this, and I think that competition in the electrolyzer market and competition in the solar wind power market is a good thing. And I think the technology will trickle out, and I think we'll work together globally like we have on all commodities and all technologies for, for years. So I can't take a, a particularly negative spin on that one personally. There was also extensive discussion of the US Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, and the generous subsidies that it offers for low-carbon hydrogen production. Let's pick up the conversation with my first guest, Rick Butel of Bloom Energy. We talked about those government incentives and whether the US was winning the global race to build a successful low-carbon hydrogen industry. Rick, thanks very much for joining us on The Energy Gang. Ed, good morning. I'm delighted to be here as well. As I mentioned to you in our warm-up, this is a podcast that I listen to, and it's an honor to be here with The Energy Gang and with Wood Mac. So look, I was just on stage chairing a panel. I've just come off from that. And the first question I asked to the people on the panel is the first question I'm going to ask you, which is why hydrogen? Where do you think hydrogen fits in the global energy system as we move towards decarbonization? It's a great question. And uh, I've been in the hydrogen business a long time. I've been at Bloom a year and a half, but I spent a short, you know, 31-year career in Air Products before that. Air Products, the global leader in hydrogen, and I led the development of many, many large hydrogen and derivatives projects. Hydrogen, as you well know, has had its fits and starts. And the time's here, the time's here. Well, no, it isn't. The time's here, the time's here. No, it isn't. But I think that now, with the acute attention that the climate crisis is getting, the need to cap global temperature rise, and the look at what are the right tools in the toolkit for decarbonization. And I personally don't believe hydrogen's the answer for everything. You read a lot of things which would suggest that. And as I mentioned, it's a tool. Direct electrification is probably the answer for many things. You know, I look forward to 2050 or 2060. God willing, we're both still here. I believe the world's energy needs will be met 80%, 85% by electrification from renewable sources or nuclear. 
But that leaves still a really, really large footprint, 10 to 15 to 20%, which need to be satisfied by other energy needs. And you're not going to drive a ship through the ocean with batteries. You're not going to fly an airplane with heavy batteries. You certainly can't make critical materials that the world needs, like steel, glass, ammonia. There's a lot of talk about ammonia as a hydrogen carrier, where I think it has promise. But I think it has more promise as a fuel, whether that's for decarbonization of power generation, decarbonization of heavy transportation, or even its classic use as a fertilizer, where many people don't realize you know, the world depends upon the process Haber and Bosch invented 100 years ago to feed half of us walking around. And you can argue whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But today, that process in making ammonia from natural gas is roughly 4% of mankind's carbon footprint. So there's a tremendous amount of decarbonization opportunity in heavy industries, transportation, and chemicals like that. I think I'd certainly argue it's a good thing. I don't believe I'd like to get by <laughs> half the food I'd for, for sure. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no, no, for sure. Right, a little tongue-in-cheek there. But um, tell me about Bloom Energy then. So where do you play in this emerging hydrogen ecosystem? What advantages do you think you've got that you can bring to the table to help develop this industry? It's a great question. And so this morning, um, Murray showed a really, really nice chart, which... And sorry, I'm going to jump in and say, Murray, this is Murray Douglas, who's my colleague. Who's your colleague, yeah. Who's our head of hydrogen research. He showed a really, really nice chart, which actually makes the point that I'm going to make for you here now. If you look at the LCOH, the so-called levelized cost of hydrogen, the classic calculation from an electrolyzer, the largest band of cost... 60 to 80%, depending upon who's doing the math and you know what the other parameters are going into the analysis, is actually the cost of the renewable electricity itself. Now, we at Bloom can't control that, right? That's in the hands of the wind and solar and hydro and nuclear developers. But what we can control is the efficiency of the electrolyzer. And if you look at high temperature solid oxide electrolysis relative to lower temperature technologies like PEM or alkaline, which have their place, our technology is roughly 20 to 30% in terms of the kilowatt hours of renewable electricity required to make one kilogram of hydrogen than those other technologies. And it's just science, chemistry, and physics, right? It operates at high temperature. If you think of the bonds that hold together H2O, right? The hydrogen molecule, the oxygen molecule. If you think of them as rubber bands, those rubber bands are more elastic at high temperature, and therefore they require less input energy to break them apart. So less kilowatt hours per kilogram. And so therefore we fit best, and our technology fits best, where we're coupled with a high temperature customer process. And we can integrate, take advantage of excess heat or waste heat. And that's many of the applications we've discussed, right? It's steel, glass, other heavy industrial processes as well as what I like to lump together and call as a category fuels of the future, right? Renewable diesel, sustainable aviation fuel, ammonia, methanol. The synthesis of all those processes is always high temperature and generally also exothermic, which means there is a waste heat stream. And we can take that low-grade waste heat stream as low-grade steam is the input to our device. And there's some what I like to call one plus one is three if you marry the technologies together. And so to pick up on something else that Murray said just now, he said, the greatest challenge for the low carbon hydrogen industry is cost. It's all about the crucial issue being that compared to existing technologies, compared to, for instance, the use of natural gas for some of these high temperature industrial processes, low carbon hydrogen at the moment is really expensive. Question, 
how much can you bring it down with your technology and with other technologies that are out there for producing hydrogen through electrolysis? Right. When can you get to be competitive with natural gas, do you think? So I think our bit and our take on that is, right, we are focused on honing in on attacking the biggest part of what I would call the problem right now, right? Which is, okay, the biggest part of the cost stack for making clean hydrogen from an electrolyzer is electricity. So we've chosen to first focus in Pareto on getting that efficiency as good as possible. And we, we've got world record efficiency. We've tested it at Idaho National Labs. So it's been certified by the Department of Energy. And we've done subsequent deployments where we're now at 37 and a half kilowatt hours per kilogram. That's benchmarked by any one scale. I think the other part from an electrolyzer is what does the electrolyzer itself cost? And while the efficiency and the electricity cast the longest shadow, the other parts that are really, really important and germane to this calculation are what's the electrolyzer cost and how long do the stacks last? Solid oxide, again, is one of the three technologies. It's one that doesn't use uh, a lot of the precious metals and materials that we're all now talking about a lot more than we did five years ago, even three years ago, right? No iridium, no platinum. It is still from a CapEx cost, from a first cost standpoint, a bit more expensive than alkaline and PEM because we are very, very slowly scaling up the stacks. So we need more stacks per kilowatt or per kilogram of hydrogen, but that's secondary to the efficiency. So we're looking at both really. Part of our cost reduction has been around starting up our new gigafactory in Fremont, California last year where we can make a gigawatt per year of fuel cell stacks. The nice thing is this material set, it's the same uh, composition, whether it's a fuel cell or an electrolyzer. So on the line, we can run fuel cells, we can run electrolyzers, it takes us about 15 minutes to change. And a gigawatt per year of fuel cell stacks is the same thing, two gigawatt per years of electrolyzer stacks. So we have invested in the manufacturing capacity and the time is now. And to... Just pursue that thought a bit further then in terms of cost parity yep. between hydrogen and natural sure, gas. So is that sure. ever going to happen? Or is this a kind of, is this a 2040s, is it 2050s? Is it never going to happen? And basically you're going to have to rely on some kind of pricing mechanism, whether it's a subsidy or a tax credit or maybe a carbon price to make the natural gas more expensive relative to low carbon, zero carbon hydrogen. What's it going to take to have a sustainable business in the long term? Yeah, so I think, you know, I could be really, really optimistic and say maybe in the next lifetime, but I think pragmatically, things like the IRA and the production tax credits, for example, are certainly a step in the right direction towards to help to close that gap with methane. But I think pragmatically, we all acknowledge that, especially in places like the U.S. Gulf Coast, the Middle East, other parts of the world, it's really going to be extraordinarily difficult to get to cost parity with methane. So what do you need? You know, you need a carbon cost. You need more production tax credits personally. And I know politically, this is a bit of a third rail. People don't want to touch it. But my view is there should be a global carbon price. And then at the end of the day, you decide as a developer of projects where you want to put it that makes the most sense, not just what government or what, you know, what area happens to be subsidizing it the most. Because at the end of the day, the carbon problem is a global problem, isn't it? The atmosphere is a plenum. And if you emit carbon dioxide in Louisiana or Edinburgh, right, or any place else in the world, it doesn't matter. It affects the parts per million of CO2 equally. Absolutely. No, that's very true. So you mentioned the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, which has got these very generous tax credits for low carbon hydrogen production. 
You're based in the US. We're having this conversation now in London. Yes. The UK has got ambitious targets for the growth of low-carbon hydrogen. The EU has got also very ambitious targets for the growth of low-carbon hydrogen. The EU has also got its own very ambitious targets for the growth of low-carbon hydrogen. There's been, I think, a lot of concern in Europe that essentially capital was being sucked away from the European market and deployed in the US as well, because the US is so attractive now as a place to invest in low-carbon hydrogen because of the generosity of these credits. Is that how you see it? Do you think the US is really kind of way out in front now in terms of this global competition to attract investment into low-carbon hydrogen? And if so, is there anything the rest of the world could do to catch up? So I think the US has staked a leadership position. You know, I would say that while we're waiting for clarity, and the clarity is around, you know, little things which are actually critically important around temporal manage, uh, temporal matching of the renewables with the hydrogen production, around, you know, co-location, et cetera. We all know what the variables are. While we're waiting for that, it's very interesting because if you actually look at announcements of projects in the U.S., the year before the IRA and the year since the IRA, there's actually a bit less project announcements once the IRA has been announced, because I think people have said, wow, this is potentially a very lucrative stream of subsidy, which is going to support projects. Because I think people have spoken in a lot of the presentations here this morning about, well, where are the off-takers? What's the off-take price? And in my view, the, the triumvirate of off-takers, off-take price, and policy that helps support and enable that all go together. And while there's still muddiness and confusion around, well, precisely what are the I's dotted and T's crossed and what precisely do you have to do? People are doing engineering work. People are doing study, but very, very few FIDs pending all of that. And in my opinion, that's giving the rest of the world. And subsequent to the IRA, we've seen Europe take more action. Um, the UK, I think even before the IRA, put you know, their own policies out there both in the form of carrot and stick, where the U.S. is effectively right now just offering a carrot. The U.K.'s policies really involve both carrot and stick. And if you look at all the different places in the world that have all of these different regimes to encourage decarbonization, in particular low-carbon hydrogen production, it's a blend. So personally, I favor the U.K.'s approach of uh, having a bit of both carrot and stick, as opposed to IRA is more carrot. Other parts of the world, it's more stick. And given that the atmosphere is a plenum, you know, I'll harken back to something I said a couple of minutes ago. Globally, at some point, we need alignment and we need a common set of standards. But wow, easy for us to sit here in London uh, in the morning in a lovely conference room and have that. That's really going to be difficult to implement. But I think long term, that's the answer to helping to solve this problem. And it's certainly not too late then for the rest of the world to catch up and for the rest of the world to develop its own uh, low-carbon hydrogen industry for other countries, other economies around the world to develop their own low-carbon hydrogen industries. That's absolutely possible. That is absolutely possible still. And I think at the end of the day, the approach is a bit bespoke based upon in what particular part of the world you are, what resources you have. So if you're in the Gulf Coast of the United States, you have really, really abundant, low-cost natural gas. You're going to be looking at producing hydrogen and probably producing electricity in the future with natural gas and you'll capture the CO2 and sequester it. And from a bloom standpoint, we like that because our natural gas fuel cell, the carbon dioxide effluent is highly concentrated and it's wet. So you knock the water out of it, 
it's sequesterable. So we can make 24-7 carbon-free power if we're adjacent to sequestration geology and somebody else is sequestering anyway. If you're in Neom in Saudi Arabia, right, and you have terrific wind and solar that are complementary, that's great. If you're in Newfoundland and you have wind and hydro, that's great. So you really, I think, look at what's the right answer technically, and it's a bit bespoke. This is not a one solution fits all. It's a one solution fits what you have regionally to bring to the table. Rick Beetel, thanks very much indeed. Enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you, Ed. Pleasure being here. I've enjoyed the conference so far. It's been very insightful. Sunfire is one of Europe's leading manufacturers of electrolyzers for making what's known as green hydrogen from water. It recently installed the world's first multi-megawatt high-temperature electrolyzer for the production of green hydrogen at Neste's renewable products refinery in Rotterdam. Ines Kraft is the company's director of project procurement. Ines, thanks very much for joining us on The Energy Gang. Thank you for inviting me. So you're literally a hot foot from the stage. I think your, your panel has just finished. So tell us... What were you just talking about? What was, what was the subject of the panel and what were the key points you were making there? Well, looking at hydrogen industry, what is it, what we face? Looking at our own company, we built already all over Europe plants right now. But the much more interesting part is that we scale up right now to one gigawatt. And each year, one gigawatt more up to 2030. But looking at 2030... European Union is targeting or demanding 200 gigawatt. Imagine 200 gigawatt. It's amazing. It's 1,000 times the installed capacity we see right now in Europe. So it's a very, very demanding pace we have to go, rapid pace. And from now, seven years to 2030, actually six only, right? We are in... in (laughs) end of 2023 already. So six years compared this to wind industry. They've had 22 years to reach the same growth. So it's incredible what we face right now. But on the other hand, it's the well opportunity of a lifetime for us in Europe, for the hydrogen industry in Europe. So it's really great to have these in front of us. And considering the the hydrogen companies, let's say 15 companies are the leading ones, two-thirds out of these 15 are based in Europe. So we are the leading ones, and we have to make sure that we keep that lead, really. So where I was going to jump in earlier was just on that question of, as you say, that staggering scaling up of electrolyzer capacity that Europe is envisaging in its 2030 goal for green hydrogen production. Do you think it's achievable? Is that doable? I mean, it sounds like, as you say, you look at comparisons with the wind industry or whatever, it's kind of an unprecedented feat that is being asked of the industry. Do you think it can be done? It's really, really challenging. And we need support, let's say, from European Union. But if you consider... Inflation Reduction Act. It's very easy for investors to invest right now. The the Inflation Reduction Act itself is done in a very easy way. And you as an investor, you can, well, work based on this very easily. Considering this in Europe, we still have two years for approval of the project. So it's, it's very demanding for all of the investors to 
get the money. So the support is needed, investing support, as wind industry has had. So we would need this for electrolyzer business as, as well. But the way it's been done right now takes too long. So we have to be faster there. So obviously you're giving a perspective from the European end of the telescope look at the United States. I feel like if you talk to people in the United States, they would say, yes, it's true, a lot of the incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act are fantastic, but they still face significant challenges as well, and they face challenges about the details of the rules of the IRA and how they're going to be applied, which has still not yet been resolved in terms of uh, temporal matching and how you're allowed to count electricity as being renewable in terms of the carbon footprint of your hydrogen production zone. And then there's also a lot of questions in the US about infrastructure investment and permitting and getting approvals for projects in all kinds of ways in building a factory or in, in building a power line or building an electrolyzer project and, and putting that into operation. So building a pipeline for hydrogen. So I think people would say they face a lot of issues in the United States as well, and it's not necessarily all rosy over there. What I wonder is then, as you look at it from a European perspective, when you think about issues beyond the straight financial incentives and the goals that governments have got, do you also see some of those same issues around, as I say, difficulties of infrastructure investment, difficulties in getting grid connections or in building the power generation so that people could supply the electrolyzers with power and so on. Are those also big problems for people looking to invest in Europe? Well, considering all of these topics, sure, all are very, very challenging. Considering this very fast growing we have in front of us. Again, if we compare us with the wind industry, we have to grow double in the same time, even more, right? So it's so challenging and demanding, but we will manage and we see that all of supply chain, well, they are standing and waiting that we start. We just need the investments. So I don't know if 200 gigawatt for all of, well, looking at the, the 15 electrolyzers, companies, if this will be manageable, but most of it will be. What are the implications then for the cost of hydrogen? That's one of the big topics that people have been discussing a lot during the course of the day today. Green hydrogen is clearly a lot more expensive than blue hydrogen. And blue hydrogen is in turn a lot more expensive than natural gas or diesel fuel or whatever else you might be seeking to use it to replace. And of course, that's also much more expensive than grey hydrogen produced through conventional means with high carbon emissions. What is the contribution of the electrolyzer industry going to be to bringing the cost of hydrogen down? Does it become a very different business when you get to this kind of gigawatt scale and you've got this very large scale production of electrolyzers going on and then you're potentially getting to even much greater scale as the European industry develops and you get towards those European targets. Does the cost of hydrogen production come down a great deal? It's really the reason behind, yeah. What we do or what we see right now, the electrolyzer plants built so far are very, let's say, kind of cute, right? So there are lots of pilot plants and, and really small plants. The, the ones we are commissioning right now are kind of 
10 megawatt, 20 megawatts, so really cute. The ones which we store to work on now are 100 megawatt. And if the scale up gets further, we are able to automize. That's what we are doing right now. The one gigawatt will be automized manufacturing. 10 megawatt hasn't been automized because, well, there was no uh, way of doing it. It was rather comparable to a pilot plant. So that's the reason. If you are able to have this large scale and these large amounts, then the cost will increase. Yeah, I've heard the pre-existing electrolyzer production business being described as a cottage industry, basically, as you say. Use that word cute. Yeah, the, you know, the scale really has been very small. Can you put numbers on the kind of cost savings that are possible? Is there a way to kind of, for people to kind of no, have a, just a rough approximation, even even roughly? I mean, what's the kind difficult of to orders say. of no, magnitude? I wouldn't, I wouldn't love to. Okay. No, sorry. <laughs> right, but it, but it will be, I mean, put it this way then. I mean, you're, you are saying that it would be very significant. Yeah, significant is the right word. And what about production in Europe then? There's a lot of discussion also at this event about China, and China obviously is a global powerhouse in production of a lot of low-carbon energy technologies in solar panels and in batteries and battery raw materials and so on. And there is talk that China will also be very dominant globally in electrolyzers, and certainly there's a lot of interest in China in investing in electrolyzer production capacity. Do you see that as a threat if you're thinking about manufacturing in Europe? Is China going to be a very strong competitor, do you think? Looking at an electrolyzer plant, it's not only the electrolyzer itself. It's a complete balance of plant. And there is lots of, well, engineering work and lots of know-how to be included, like an, let's say, small EPC. And considering these as we lead this market right now, we will keep on leading these right now because we formerly have had the automotive industry in Germany and in Europe. The good idea is to, well, exchange these with hydrogen business because for automotive, we have been leaders for years, even if China was able to do this as well. But always let's say the target behind to keep the business here and make everything which is kind of not that easily to be managed to keep this here and be market leader or at least as a European company being the lead of this hydrogen business to keep that in in Europe and to well considering also the difficulties we've had with China during the last two years, let's say, delivery topics and actually shall not face this again. We have to be kind of reliant in Europe, being independent from any Chinese uh, market or Chinese industry shall be one of our targets, main targets and is already. You were talking earlier about Europe's relatively strong position in the global electrolyzer industry. And I think, what did you say? It was of the top 15 companies in the world, 10 are in Europe. Is that the right number? Two-thirds, yeah. 
Um, so what does it take then for Europe to maintain that global leadership or that strong global position, put it that way? Well, we have to keep this rapid pace. If we now wait for permit, wait for approvals and are not able to, to keep on going, we as electrolyzer manufacturers, we are, we are there, we are waiting for the contracts. We are there, we have one gigawatt and this has to be, well, installed on the market. So we need the investments and this is the, if we uh, are able to get these investments in Europe, then we will be able to keep the lead. Ines Kraft, thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me, Ed. Enjoy the rest of your day. Mona Bagat is Business Development Director at KBR Consulting. Her work focuses on the energy transition and emerging technologies, and particularly green and blue hydrogen and ammonia. I talked to her about what it would take to make green hydrogen competitive on cost. Mona, welcome to the Energy Gang. Thanks. When you look at green hydrogen today, it is very expensive. There were numbers being quoted earlier in the day at this conference saying that it's roughly, obviously it'll vary different parts of the world and so on, but very broadly as a global average, it's about three times price of blue hydrogen, blue hydrogen. made from natural gas with yes. carbon capture and storage, which in turn is maybe double the price of natural gas or diesel fuel or other alternatives that you'd be wanting to use hydrogen to replace. So how do you bring that cost down? How do you get green hydrogen to the point where it can be really cost competitive against conventional fuels? Is that even sort of realistic to think at all that it can happen? And if it can happen, how? So I think I would like to bring to the discussion the IRA here, because with the IRA, you are breaking even at, at that one, let's say the the achievable 1.1, 1.2 dollars a kilo, which everyone wants to achieve. So policy is the first thing I believe that will that will drive uh, the, the green hydrogen pricing mechanism. And so if policy is in place, and you see that today in North America, you see that the number of projects that are going forward has escalated uh, since last year, since the IRA was announced. Of course, there are people are waiting for clarifications and other bits. However, still people have started to move forward with the projects. And having said that, not only green hydrogen projects, you're seeing that the 45Q got extended in the IRA, which also helps the low-carbon hydrogen projects to be moving forward as well. So it, you see that if there is policy in place, there is investment in place, I think the projects are going to go forward, and that is going to drive down the cost of green hydrogen. Is the US kind of way out in front of the rest of the world then in terms of this, if, as you say, they've got the Inflation Reduction Act. If you compare to other markets that are very interested in developing their own green hydrogen industries, certainly in Europe, Japan, other countries around the world, you would say that the US is well, well ahead of all of those. Absolutely. So, so, so the US is, they've made this work for them, but I think they've made it made the hydrogen economy happen in many ways by putting the IRA in place because it is actually increasing momentum of hydrogen projects. You see a lot of uptick, even though it's just feasibility level or pre-feed level, you see a lot of hydrogen projects in play today in the US. And same with blue hydrogen projects. And I see there's a 50-50, it's a 50-50 mix in blue and green because you don't have enough renewables to do everything green today. And that's going to be the case maybe till 2030, 2035, you may not have enough of renewable capacity 
to make green hydrogen. And so you have to have this kind of mix of green and blue, which is fine because the IRA is also extending itself to, you know, carbon capture projects. And so they'll have a mix of blue and green. You see other countries, you see the European Union, of course, um, there's lots of projects in Europe being implemented as we speak, but there has to be better policy in place to make it actually cost-effective and viable. Yeah, as you say, Europe clearly needs this huge scaling up of electrolyzer capacity to meet its targets for green hydrogen production. It's got this very, very demanding target for 2030, which implies we've been told something like 200 gigawatts of electrolyzer capacity in Europe by that year. Yes. Only seven years from now. Yeah. I mean, less than that, a bit over six years from now. Is that at all realistic to think that Europe can get to that scale in that short time? I think it's a tall order because if you look at what we, where we are today, we are nowhere in the, at that scale. And so to, to scale up to the 200 gigawatt level, it's going to need all the electrolyzer manufacturers to ramp, ramp up their capacities to gigawatt level. But even if all of them do it, they're not going to reach that target. So it's an unrealistic target, in my opinion. However, having said that, I think they can push the technology, they can reduce the cost of technology, and they can still scale up. Maybe they don't reach the 200 mark, but they'll reach 150 maybe. But that's still a lot more than where we are today. Yeah, absolutely. That's still spectacular growth, isn't it? Even just getting to that point. You were saying about how, if you look at the landscape of projects and development around the world, there's huge interest in both green hydrogen and blue hydrogen. Both of those things making pro- progress, perhaps particularly because of the more competitive economics of blue hydrogen right now, probably some of the very large scale projects in blue hydrogen are making more progress than they are in green hydrogen. I think that's yes. probably fair, isn't it? Yes. Now, you will hear people say, this is a bad thing. This is a kind of basically a negative development because blue hydrogen is not really low carbon in the sense that... It is obviously lower carbon than, than what we're doing gray, today. Than yeah. what we're doing today, exactly. Yeah. Lower carbon than conventional grey hydrogen, and yet it is still significantly higher carbon, probably than uh, green hydrogen. And if you're looking at a world in which we need to get to net zero emissions globally by sometime around the middle of the century in order to meet the targets of the Paris Climate Agreement. People will say, well, that proves that blue hydrogen can have no long-term place in that world. If we're going to have hydrogen as an important part of the energy system, it all has to be green hydrogen. Do you think there's something in that argument? I mean, do you have concerns about the carbon footprint of blue hydrogen that raise questions about the amount of money that's being put into it at the moment? The issue around the blue and green is you can't switch on and switch off assets today. So we can't switch off all the assets we have today, which are emitting all this carbon dioxide. You've got to do something about it. So I believe that if you're sequestering that carbon, then you you still have to keep those assets running. And so blue is a necessity today to keep everything running as it is we have today. For the future, yes, we need to be green. We need to be environmentally friendly and we need to shift into that green mindset. And that is already happening. You see, already see a paradigm shift towards green hydrogen. And, and we as, as countries know that we have to 
make green hydrogen to make it sustainable, make, make energy sustainable. However, within this transition period, you're going to have to have blue to a certain extent. And, and that goes without saying. I think CCUS is, is, is here, here to stay. Until 2050, you will have to have these projects going forward such that you at least meet your Paris goal agreement. Otherwise, you are not going to meet it. Without, without sequestering the carbon that we are emitting today, we cannot meet the Paris Agreement goals. And so it is a necessity, particularly people may not like it, but it's, it's, it's what we have to do. And going back to that point about cost then and the cost of green hydrogen being the big issue for it at the moment, is it realistic to think that the costs are really going to drop very, very significantly? Is it realistic to think that green hydrogen could one day be cheaper than blue hydrogen or that green hydrogen could one day compete with the conventional fuels that we want to use it to replace? Yes, and, and in some countries you see that, right? So if you look at the economics in Chile or in, you know, in, in some other countries, you see that the tipping point already occurs by 2030, 2020, 2028. 20, so it's already here. It's already, you know, we're already just about four or five years away from it. And so it depends on the region the project's going to be in and how, how quickly it can be deployed and how quickly production can start. So I think, yes, it's possible in some regions of the world, you will see the tipping point and they will move straight to green. But in some, some countries and some regions, it's going to be taking a long time before we reach that tipping point. As you've just been explaining, there's this tremendous amount of interest in hydrogen, a lot of projects in development, some projects already taking final investment decision, others are kind of getting close to that point we expect a very rapid increase in low-carbon hydrogen production. Is it enough? As I say, going back to when we think about the Paris Agreement, the whole point of all of this, ultimately, is to to meet those goals, to develop a lower-carbon and ultimately zero-carbon energy system, which we absolutely do not have at the moment. Is enough being done? I don't think so. And the reason I say this is you need to have enough investment in these projects. Not enough projects are being FID'd. Even when you look at low-carbon hydrogen projects, not a lot of projects are going forward. Lots of people are talking about it. Lots of people are doing studies on it. But not many projects are being FID'd and going into the next phase of project where actually it becomes a real project. In the US, there are a lot of projects being put on the table at the moment because of the IRA, but I don't see that anywhere else in the world. So there's a big uptick in low-carbon projects in the US, but that's not seen elsewhere. So what more needs to be done? If you're thinking about the advice that should be given to governments, to the industry, to investors, to everybody, to consumers who think, right, we really need to, as you say, do more to get on that trajectory that will actually get us towards the goals of Paris. What more needs to happen? I think a lot of collaboration is needed. So the governments, the investors, the the engineering community, the industrial uh, clients, the stakeholders, all these key stakeholders need to come together and work towards this goal. And at the moment, that's not happening. So the policymakers, the investors, the developers, everybody needs to sit around a table and agree this is what we're going to do and they need to do it very quickly and fast because 2050 is not far away. And I think till we don't put our money where the mouth is, we are not getting there. 
Amanda Baguette, thanks very much. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ed. Enjoy the rest of your day. Our last interview in this episode is with Andre Pina, who is the Associate Director of Hydrogen Strategy and Origination at EDP Renewables. I talked to him about the topic of his panel session, which was prospects for an international market in hydrogen and its derivatives traded around the world. Andre, welcome to the Energy Gang. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. Now, you're going to be talking at a panel at the conference later today about trade in hydrogen, about the extent to which we're going to see uh, an international trade in hydrogen and its derivatives, such as ammonia and methanol. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you're going to be saying on that panel? I mean, I suppose the interesting question for me is, first of all, what kind of international trade are we going to see and why? Do you think we are going to see a global market where low-carbon hydrogen and its derivatives are traded right around the world? Yeah, I think that's one of the key important questions, which is, are we going to see a big market or not? And do we need it? And at TDP Renewables' point of view, we do need it in the long term because we do want to decarbonize those hard to electrify sectors. So that can be, for example, aviation, the maritime sector, or some big heavy industries that require not electricity, but molecules. And so once we get there, hydrogen and then its derivatives, ammonia, methanol, or even sustainable aviation fuels, they are the ones that will be needed. And this can be a big part of the market. And what we're seeing is that the big demand centers are clearly not sufficient or they do not have renewables enough to be self-sufficient in the long term. Right. So you mean there are parts of the world that have fantastic renewable resources, sunlight, wind, whatever it might be, for producing green hydrogen, presumably also potentially resources of natural gas and of storage sites for carbon dioxide that mean they could produce blue hydrogen at a low cost. And those places you're saying are not near the demand centers, so therefore there has to be some way found to connect where the hydrogen is produced with where it's being used. Yes, I would even start the other way around, which is the places where you do need that energy, they are not able to produce it. We do see that transportation of hydrogen, even if it's in its pure form or liquid or organic carriers or whatnot, it's something that's expensive, it's technology challenging. Um, and you need a lot of infrastructure that is not there yet as of today, right? So it makes sense to produce it as locally as possible, but it's clearly not sufficient with the resource that we have in parts of Central Europe or parts of Asia, for example, right? So those demand centers, they will need to be fed into it somehow. Right. As you say, transporting hydrogen is difficult. It was explained to me once the shorthand is the molecules are small. You can't just put hydrogen, for instance, down an existing natural gas pipeline because and you'll get escapes and leakage, and you get embrittlement of the metal and so on. So the pipeline systems for hydrogen need to be specially designed. Then if you talk about putting hydrogen on a ship, the energy density of liquid hydrogen is not great, so the economics of that look difficult. You could turn your hydrogen into ammonia and transport that, and that's a fairly well-established international trade already, and actually there is quite a lot of ammonia already shipped around the world. What are your expectations given these various um, competing pressures, what are your expectations about what kind of international trade we might see ultimately? Do you think we are going to see tankers full of some kind of hydrogen product going on a large scale around the world? I think it all depends on the end use. So for some sectors, you need ammonia directly. So that means that you can produce it anywhere in the world where it's cheaper, where it's greener, and then really transport it. And as you said, this already exists. We just need to clean it up, right? If it's methanol or that's the same. But once you need hydrogen, the options are slimmer because either you transport it through ammonia or methanol and then you crack it back into hydrogen, which is something that's very costly, it's energetically inefficient, or you transport it in a carrier, 
Or you have another alternative, which we are seeing some heavier industries, which is they relocate and they move to places where you can produce it and then they ship the product. So it really depends on the end use and it really depends on the government's ability either to retain that industry or to capture that industry for countries that want to export. To take an example, as you say, if you've got an end user for ammonia, so that might be in the fertilizer industry, or I guess increasingly perhaps for power generation, there's a lot of um, interest in using ammonia as a fuel for power generation, maybe co-firing with coal or with natural gas in power plants or perhaps used on its own. Those kind of markets you think could be attractive ones for producing low-carbon hydrogen, turning it into low-carbon ammonia, and then shipping it to the market. You think that's probably got the greatest potential? Yes, and that's what we're seeing now with the first projects. They're actually targeting direct ammonia uses because those are the ones that are the cost competitiveness, while not great, it's still closer than the ones in which you have to convert it back to hydrogen and then sell it to the industries. And when you think about Europe in particular, Europe obviously is pinning a lot of hopes on hydrogen as part of its strategy, both for decarbonization and for energy security, and trying to reduce its reliance on Russian gas and so on. And as I understand it, as Europe is kind of envisaging this hydrogen strategy, there is definitely a significant component of imports that will be part of that, right? And European countries are saying, we will produce a lot of our hydrogen ourselves, but we will import a lot as well. What's your expectation about how that's going to develop then? Do you think we're going to see the domestic production in Europe actually develop first, before the imports, so the two things going to go hand in hand, or will we actually see imports being the kind of the leaders in terms of the development of the European hydrogen market and domestic production only follow on later? Yeah, I think we need to look at it from a value chain perspective and from a project's component, right? And so if a hydrogen project, what it entails is that you require the energy source, you require the hydrogen production facility, and then you require the transportation distribution infrastructure, right? And what we are seeing today is that we can do renewables more or less anywhere. We know that Europe is having issues, and the UK as well, on where to locate those renewables because we have great constraints and so on. But other countries have those problems too. It's not just for us. Even countries that have great resource, the reality of the fact is that they also do not have those power grids in place yet. Then you need the hydrogen technology. And we must bear in mind that even though the technology itself has been around for hundreds of years, the companies that manufacture the equipments they have not. And so the track record on what's the lifetime of those assets, what's the efficiency of those assets, it's not there yet. We don't know. And that's a huge risk if you want to take a very big decision on a huge project for exports, right? And then the transportation distribution. You need infrastructure if you want to do that. You don't have that. Even countries that want to export, they don't have the terminals in place. Someone needs to build them. Someone needs to ensure their bankability. And then you need to charge a fee for use them. And when the use is small, the fees are high. So that reduces cost competitiveness. So that's why we see that in the short term, we do expect projects to be local in nature, smaller in scale, really provide that knowledge of what it is to develop a project. So how do you think about this then as EDP renewables? Given that view of the market, given your expectation that in the long term, there will be a significant international trade in hydrogen and derivatives, and perhaps particularly in derivatives, perhaps particularly in ammonia, but in the shorter term... Projects are going to be very much local and you're going to be producing hydrogen to be used as close as possible to where the production site is. How do you then sort of bridge that gap? And as you're making investments and thinking about your corporate strategy, how do you kind of prepare for that longer term future, also addressing the shorter term needs? 
Yeah, so we're taking advantage of the company that we are. So EDP is an integrated group. We are present in power generation, electricity transport distribution, and also supply in some regions. And so we're taking advantage of that. And so most of our projects that we are developing today are projects from 5 to 150 megawatts, let's say, smaller in scale, very local. We are locating those projects, a lot of them, in places where we already know the regions, we know our neighbors, they are the refineries, the steel makers, the petrochemicals, we know the local governments, so that's quite important as well, in order to unblock the projects. But in many of these locations, we are actually able to quickly scale up and develop projects of 500 megawatts or more of electrolyzers. And a lot of these locations are close to deep water ports, meaning if you want to export, it's possible. So we are developing these projects in smaller in scale, already doing some engineering studies for larger developments in case the market picks up and we are ready to catch the wave and just go for it. That's very interesting. Fascinating to hear about your plans. Andre Pina, thanks very much indeed. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much, and it was a pleasure. That's all for this episode. But if you want more on the future of hydrogen, check out part two of this podcast, which will be published tomorrow. On that episode, we'll be talking to Will Lockhead, who works on hydrogen for the UK government's Department for Energy Security and Net Zero, and to Akshay Bardwaj, who's the head of commercial business development for ammonia at OCI Global the fertiliser and chemicals company that's developing what will be the world's largest blue ammonia facility when it comes on stream in 2025. If you want more from the Wood Mackenzie Conference, check out the hashtag WMHydrogen on LinkedIn and other social media. Many thanks to all of our guests. Thanks to our producers, Roxy Abraham khan and Toby Biggins-Gilchrist. And above all, many thanks to all of you for listening. As you know, we're always keen to hear your thoughts, your praise, criticism, comments, complaints, ideas for future shows, whatever it might be. We're on a wide range of social platforms, so please do send us your feedback any way that works for you. But for now, until tomorrow, goodbye. <laughs>